Welcome to Writing the Past, a space where historical fiction writers share their experiences and advice on bringing the past to life. I'm your host, Megan Douglas. So hello everyone and welcome back. This episode we're speaking with Joanne Joseph. She's a leading South African broadcast journalist and best-selling author of Drug Mule's 16 Years in a Thai Prison. She has hosted prominent radio and television shows for major broadcasters, including the South African Broadcasting Corporation and Prime Media House. Children of Sugarcane is her first work of fiction. Joanne, it's so great to have you here on the podcast. Thank you, Megan. Really lovely to be with you. Wonderful. So the first thing I wanted to jump in and ask you was what first got you into writing? So I've been writing for a long time, but I've been writing very different things. And obviously I got to university and started with a bit of academic writing there. But then I fell into television and radio at around that time. I was simultaneously studying and working in radio. They had started a youth radio station in South Africa and I managed to get into that as a newsreader. So that was where I started writing news. And so I spent many, many years learning how to write news and then documentary sort of content and quite a lot of television news content. So there's a very particular way of writing for that. You write to pictures, essentially, and and the pictures determine what the text will sound like. And so, you know, that was the discipline that I followed for many, many years. And then one day, you know, I'd always wondered about my ability to write because even in my postgrad study, I studied literature and that was always really my first love. And then I wondered to myself, I wondered whether you would be able to write a, a book. And I wondered what genre you would be able to write and whether you'd be any good at it, you know. And so I thought, let me give it a try. I did an interview. Uh, you mentioned my first book, uh, Drug Mule, 16 Years in a Thai Prison. And it was based on a studio interview I had done with a South African woman who had come back from Thailand after being jailed there for 16 and a half years for, you know, she was charged with carrying a few kilograms of heroin, trying to carry a few kilograms of heroin out of the country. And she was caught and fortunately her sentence was commuted or she would have had the death sentence. It was a really intriguing story. It was what was meant to be a short format interview on television, turned out to be a long format interview. And that was what got me thinking about whether I could write outside of the genre of news. And it became apparent when I made the attempt to write that it actually was possible. And so that was a very satisfying discovery about myself. And at around the same time, I was wondering, could I actually push myself a little bit further and try to write fiction? And I started on something and it took me nine years But evidently, the answer to the question is yes. So I have managed to publish Children of Sugarcane. And, you know, fortunately, it has been well received so far in my country. And and we're getting some fairly good feedback from overseas as well. And so, yeah, the writing journey has been a long one for me. It's been one of very, very slow self-discovery. But I think I've got to a point where I've realized that there are a few different types of writing that I really enjoy. That's amazing. And I feel like... I wonder if journalism especially and all of that can be especially useful when writing historical fiction. I imagine, I mean, we'll talk about the research in a little bit, but I imagine it must have given you a lot of skills already that would have been then useful writing a book, I'm sure. That's actually true, Megan. Funny enough, you don't think about it consciously. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no, sorry, it's, it's I'm funny, isn't it? You don't think about it because, you know, that whole, so the research and the factual kind of basis for that becomes a habit, you know, so... When you're writing historical fiction, you're doing a lot of research and you're never happy with all the research that you've gathered and you just keep doing more. But I suppose that is a hangover from my news background, yes. (laughs) 
it all comes in useful. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on the publication of your historical fiction novel, uh, Children of Sugarcane, which you've mentioned just now. For those who are listening who might not know what this story is about, it tells the story of Shanti, a bright teenager who is stifled by life in rural India and facing an arranged marriage. She dreams that South Africa is an opportunity to start afresh and escape the poverty, caste and traumatic fate of young girls in her village. And months later, after a harrowing sea voyage, she arrives in Natal and realizes that life there is full of violence, injustice and hard labor. Now, what I find so amazing about this story and when I was reading it is that I learned that this book was actually inspired by the life of your great-grandmother, Joanne. So I'd love to know more about that and what it was like to research her story and how that birthed this amazing book. So Megan, it was both intriguing and frustrating at the same time because I knew very little about my great-grandmother. My mother knew very little about her grandmother. And so I had asked these questions that nobody had answers to. And I thought to myself, well, you know, there's a very, very interesting story there that is unexplored in our family. I know the history of my dad's side of the family. It's fairly well documented. They came to this country as passenger Indians in the late 1800s as well. So, but you know, there are records and there are photographs and one knows about his family. There was literally just one photograph of my grandmother, which was floating around and which I hadn't actually found myself for some time before I was able to go back and dig up her story. And I discovered that she had come to South Africa in 1884 with three of her siblings, a younger brother. She was about 21, 22. She had a brother who was about the same age. And then there were two younger siblings, sisters, Amini and Minachi, who were 15 and 10 years old. And interestingly, they arrived on the Laurel Madras in South Africa. They were dispatched to the government, the Natal government railways to work here. And they even employed the 10-year-old and the 15-year-old on the railways, even though legally one should only have, according to the rules of indenture, employed the children from the age of 16 upwards. And so it gave me a sense that there was a lot more in the story than we were actually being told. And I went to the history books at that point because after that I just hit a dead end in the archive. I could not find any more information about her. So I went to a more generalized archive that's been created by our wonderful academics in this country historians, sociologists, literature experts and the like, who've actually put together that archive for us and have documented indentured history. And I was able to draw on the stories of several other women. And so the stories told in the book are inspired by the life of my great-grandmother. They're also a composite of several other women who experienced much the same hardship and difficulty and suffering on the plantations and in various other sectors in which they were employed during their time here. So great-grandmother was a huge inspiration for the book. And of course, I later found out, I rediscovered her in the archive a little bit later on. She's got, by that time, she's a much older woman. She has served out her indenture. She has educated her children. She has married. She has run a Methodist mission from her home for almost 30 years. She's a very different woman. And of course, that leads to the question, what happened in the middle? You know, I have the beginning and I have the end. What happened in the middle? And that was the bit that I fictionalized. It's incredible to know that you had this story in your family and that you were able to draw on that for inspiration for all of these characters. And there's a really diverse mix of characters who are all living through all of these experiences at that time. And I wonder if having this close connection to the story, whether there's a character that you relate a lot to personally, and if so, who would it be? 
and why? I think it would have to be my protagonist, Shanti. I've imbued her with some of my qualities like a bad temper, impetuousness, obstinacy. <laughs> but the things I like about her, <laughs> the things I like about her are the fact that she's a very resolute young woman. She is courageous. She is, in some ways, fearless, or if she is fearful, finds a way of conquering that fear. She has a great love for education and the early realization that it is the only way that she is going to improve her life. She's sort of an early feminist, you know, in that she's mm. showing these qualities of independence, of power, of wanting to take her fate in her own hands, of rebellion against many, many patriarchal structures in which she's operating. And those are really the qualities that I wanted to imbue a female protagonist with. And I thought, you know, if I write this book, it's got to be the story of a very powerful young woman or a young woman who comes into her power over a period of time. And I hope I managed to do that. But that is why I'm so attached to her. She has those qualities that I myself aspire to as a woman in South Africa. Absolutely. And for me personally, I found her story incredibly inspirational. And But what I also loved was that she didn't stand alone, that she was, there were so many powerful themes interwoven throughout, and that included the deep bonds between Shanti and her family and her friends. And there are some writers who might be listening who are thinking, how can I create these same kind of connections between my characters, you know, meaningful, authentic interactions that are really emotional and deep and profound that really have an impact on the reader? So I think there are a few ways of going about that. It was something, I mean, the relationship between Shanti and her best friend, Devi, came to me far more naturally. The relationships between other people were perhaps a little bit more difficult to write. But I think one of the, and, and this I say this because I'm not an experienced fiction writer. This is my first fictional novel. So there were things I sort of stumbled upon in the process of learning how to write the relationships between those characters. And I think the first one is observation. So observation of your own relationships in your life, how you interact with people, how people interact with each other in society, what they say to each other, what they don't, kind of secrets they keep, what makes them angry with each other or fall in love with each other. And those may seem like very obvious things, but actually they're very, very good content for books because they present a kind of naturalistic view of how people interact with each other in real life. But at the same time, I'm also, because I studied film as well in my first degree, actually, and I became quite a keen observer of interactions between characters in screenwriting or in drama and that kind of thing, because drama was one of my majors at university. So I always watch television and film in a way that's very critical, because I'm constantly looking at how people interact with each other. And I'm asking myself, questions about why they say what they do to each other, why they omit certain things from what they ought to say to each other. Those observations are a kind of subliminal education that you as a writer can benefit from when you're watching those interactions. And I think those have been some of the most useful things to me. And they may not be conventional tools, but they really were very useful to me in writing these relationships. Well, it was definitely effective because reading it, I felt very deeply the bond of friendship that Shanti had with Devi, for example, and the people around her. There were some very, there were some very profound moments that did move me to tears once or twice, I will admit. <laughs> it was very powerful for me. 
But there were also some aspects of the story that obviously it's we're talking about a time in history that was very difficult for people like Shanti. And so there were some parts that were also quite powerful, but also difficult and harrowing to read. And so as a writer, how do you approach writing some of the more difficult scenes? Those were very emotional for me to write, Megan. And I remember those early versions are just outpourings of grief on the page in a way. I was very aware while I was writing that I was writing about the lives of real people, even though my fictional characters were mere composites of their lives. And that's very hurtful because you think to yourself, these are the sorts of things my great-grandmother must have experienced. This is the kind of emotional anguish she might have experienced. This is the deprivation. This is the hardship that she experienced. And suddenly, when you realize that, that you have a direct thread to all of these experiences, it becomes very emotional to you. It becomes very hurtful to you, what actually happened. And you start to look around at people in your country. You know, South Africa is classed by the World Bank as the most unequal society in the world. You look around and you look particularly at the African majority in this country and you say to yourself, there are people in my country living as my great-grandmother lived 160 years ago. And the reality of those two aspects is very, very difficult to put down on paper because while you're writing the past, you're writing the present as well. And so there's no skill in that writing in those first drafts. There is simply a dumping onto the page of very, very deep emotion. And it could be sadness, it could be rage, it could be real disappointment with the fact that people continue to live in a society that has not solved these issues all these centuries, well, a century and a half later. And so I allowed myself that, that outlet on the page. And it was only later on that I brought to bear some of the skills of writing when I rewrote those drafts. There are about 22 drafts of the book that exist. You have probably read what is the 22nd draft. But that was why it required so much redrafting because there were scenes in which people died, in which characters I had grown very, very, very close to and very bonded with, who had met a very violent end. And that was extremely hard for me to write. So I just allowed myself that process where in the first few drafts, there was that deep unbridled emotion on the page. And once I had written and written and written and rewritten it, there was at least a little bit of distance to be able to add the technical aspects of what is required to make it a readable chapter. But the first part of that experience was a fairly upsetting and melancholic one. I can only imagine, and I suppose as you say, it's a case of allowing oneself to feel that raw emotion, to put that onto the page, and then afterwards, in subsequent drafts, then to go back through and organise that and reframe it ready for the final versions. But it must have been a very raw process, I can only imagine. So the other thing I really wanted to ask you about is plot twists, because there were several moments that caught me by surprise. And true story, I was sitting on the plane reading Children of Sugar Cane, and there was one point when I actually shouted out loud, no way, <laughs> on a plane, sitting surrounded by all of these people. <laughs> I don't know if anyone reading has ever had moments like that where you are taken by surprise when something happens that you weren't expecting. And it's something I especially really loved about this book. There were things I did not expect. And there are these threads interwoven through the plot that do catch you by surprise. And so I'd love to know what you think makes a good plot twist or, or how you go about creating them because it was just brilliant. <laughs> Thank 
you, Megan. So there's something that I read more recently, actually, when I was editing, which is useful, although I didn't use it as a kind of hard and fast rule. But it was, I don't even remember, it was from a blog or something, but it was really useful in that it said, write down all the possible plot twists and then kill all the most obvious ones. And as I said, you cannot apply it as a hard and fast rule, but it's actually, it's a good one to think about when you're thinking of twisting a plot, because it at least prevents you from being predictable as a writer, to some extent anyway. I think what's in a good plot twist is the fact that you've got to set it up somehow. So it's got to be plausible at the very least, even if it's not likely, because Real life is sometimes not likely, but it's plausible anyway, as I found out in all the news stories that I've covered over the years. So that was important to me. There are clues in the plot earlier on in the book as to what may happen a little bit later on. And you have to do that as a writer or you're being disingenuous, I think, to your reader. Because when the plot twist happens, your reader's got to, after having that moment of shock, on the plane or wherever it may be, <laughs> your reader's got to say, your reader's got to say, okay, but how did she set that up? And, you know, how plausible was it? Or did it come so far out of the blue that it's really not possible it could have happened? So plot twists, in fact, are perhaps a little bit less about the twist itself than how you subtly set those up. It's the preamble to setting those up and burying those clues in the text and distracting the reader enough for her to think that it's of no consequence, the sort of details and the clues that you've left there. And that power of distraction also works on the reader's assumptions. There are assumptions that we make as readers when we are reading a text all the time, and that may be based on our life experience, or what we're used to happening in real life. And of course, the plot twist is the undermining and the sabotaging of what we expect. But of course, that is common to real life as well. You know, there's certain things that we just wouldn't have expected. You know, you interact with someone all the time and all of a sudden you discover that this person has committed a crime of some kind. You know, in our country, the story of the of state capture was quite astonishing to us because our former president, Jacob Zuma, was a man revered by everyone, you know, for his role in the anti-apartheid struggle. That was a plot twist that we weren't expecting. And so they do happen all the time. But of course, all the means existed prior to the alleged looting for him to have set that in motion. So, you know, for me, those are the elements of producing a plot twist, but also asking yourself consciously, what is the reader really not expecting? And what could be the most plausible departure from the norm in creating this? And also, how will it contribute to elements of the story that follow it afterwards. So it's a very technical calculation, unfortunately, and written with very little instinct, but a little more consciousness of how it could drive the plot forward. Yeah, well, it definitely was effective because I very much enjoyed reading it and it really did sweep me away. And those are some really helpful tips to keep in mind as well. I think, as you say, it really varies depending on the situation, but there are some things that we can keep in mind to make it plausible, to make it weave into the rest of the plot. So that's really helpful for me personally as I'm writing. So thank you. I think my favourite quote is, I think towards the end of the novel, it's probably one of my favourite quotes that I've read in a book. I'm going to actually take the liberty of just reading it aloud now so that people can hear it. 
So it's towards the end of the book and Joanne writes, wherever we go, we leave our impression and all the generations that follow are marked by it too. It occurs to me that the past is neither carved in stone alone nor recorded singularly by the quill. Perhaps it is etched into the flesh, bones and memory of human beings and travels silently into the veins of our descendants. Perhaps the only measure of hope lies in the future, for as long as it remains unwritten, it is all we mere mortals have the power to change. Those words just stayed with me so much. And I wanted to ask you, Joanne, what do you hope people will take away from this story when they have finished reading it? So Megan, that is one of the thrusts really of the story. It talks to intergenerational trauma. And that's something that we in South Africa are grappling with right now because we've had several generations of it. We were first colonized 300 years ago. You know, the indenture takes place about 160 years ago. That was followed by apartheid. And and they were really all of a continuum of suffering in this country, if you sum them up. And for several generations, people in this country, people on this continent, and people in various other parts of the world who've also been the victims of atrocities and the survivors of atrocities, have experienced much the same thing. I mean, survivors of the Holocaust, for example, are still pondering over what has traveled through the bones of their ancestors into them. And I think that why that is relevant is because history is written in different ways. Yes, we do write it in the textbooks. You know, the jury is out on how effective that writing is when we know that history is a collation of the subjectivities of people who put those books together. And so we have versions of history that don't tell the whole story. This was a way of writing history from the bottom up. And so there is that history. And then there's a kind of, in a way, in my mind, a metaphysical history that actually travels through people. It is the trauma. It is the pain. It is the unspoken shame of history that travels through people. And it re-manifests in every generation in different ways. It may re-manifest in anger, in violence. It may re-manifest in the lack of ability to have a voice and therefore overt silences. There are so many ways in which intergenerational trauma manifests in the following generations. And why that is important is because we keep remaking the mistakes of history. We have a war going on in Ukraine right now. We've had wars going on in Africa for many decades, and there are different types of conflicts on the go in the Middle East and various other places. All of those continue to rage for exactly the same reasons. Hatred, oppression, discrimination, you know, everything in history that that has caused great conflict in the past continues to cause great conflict in the present, and also continues to cause great damage to the human beings who are affected by it and to the landscape as well that is affected by it. So that was one of the strong thrusts of the book, is that this has happened before. It's affected people for many generations in negative ways. Can we learn from those mistakes, and can we stop what we've been doing for generations? Because an event may happen in a period, during a particular period in history, but it doesn't stop there. It travels through time, and the damage occurs over several generations. And if we stop now, there's a small chance, uh, or if we come to terms with what has happened in the past now and prevent it from traveling further, there's a chance that we could liberate our descendants from the kind of difficulties that arise out of intergenerational trauma. 
That's incredible. And thank you so much for writing this important story because I think I was saying before, I've never actually heard this story. I grew up in a British school and these stories were not told. And maybe the first step is speaking these events aloud so that people can reflect on it and address it and consider what the implications of that are if we want to have a better future. So I remember after stopping, after finishing the book, I actually couldn't pick up another book for a few days because I needed to mull over those things. And it was certainly the resounding message of the book that I felt definitely when I was reading. And it's a story that's really inspired me personally. But speaking of inspiration, are there any writers that have inspired you a lot over the years or writers who you particularly admire? You know, there are so many and it's really difficult to mention all of them because literature has been my primary area of study. I studied drama and film and English and then the rest of my postgrad studies have all been in literature. And I was a very keen reader as a child, reading quite heavy literature then. So my influence, conscious or unconscious, comes from a wide number of sources. I started off with a real interest in, in Greek theatre and in the writing of the period of, of Jane Austen and Victorian writing and, you know, American writing. And then there are, of course, fantastic African writers that I was exposed to at school. And there were also Asian influences as well. So in a way, I've drawn my love for literature from various writers all over the world. You know, Athol Fugard is one of our, our very influential playwrights who's turning 90 as we speak, and he's written about amazing things. He, John Carney, another of our theatre practitioners here, extremely experienced, talented people who've come out of that theatre tradition that have written so well about the apartheid experience. Ben Okri, these days, there's an objection to classifying his writing as magical realism because Africans see magical, the metaphysical and the supernatural as very much part of their culture and not as magic, if you like. But that tradition of writing really, really appeals to me. And then there are the Asian writers like Arundhati Roy, Jhumpa Lahiri, you know, some of the, the writers have been integrated into modern European or American society and are talking about the Asian experience within that context. That interests me a lot. And then you've got other writers, African writers who are writing from other places, Chimamanda Adichie, and closer to home writers like Zukiswa Wana and Yewande Omotoso, younger writers who are writing about the African or South African experience right now. And so the influence is just so wide and so varied. And the wonderful academic writers that I love, uh, Pumla Dineotola, you know, Betty Govenden, you know, Selva Naidu, Kiru Naidu, a whole lot of academics in South Africa who are writing amazing, brilliant work. My PhD supervisor, Isabel Hoffmeyer, who's just written a book about hydrocolonialism and how people cross the ocean and colonize the oceans in order to colonize the land as well. So it's so difficult to pin down my most important influences, but they are wide and they are varied. And I'm so grateful to them for shaping my literary worldview over the decades. That's fantastic as well, just to think about how you have grown as a writer throughout this whole journey. And I, I wonder if you could go back in time to your past self, what piece of writing advice would you give? I would say three words to myself, you can write. I didn't believe it of myself for a very long time and constrained myself as a writer for a long time, Megan. And I think that many of your listeners are probably doing the same as we speak. There are young people out there doing creative writing degrees or who didn't do a creative writing degree and decided they were going to go off and do engineering for argument's sake because they didn't have faith in their own abilities. 
And it takes time to prove to yourself that you are able to do what you think you might be able to do. But we don't live in a society that encourages young writers to believe that, to believe that they will be able to develop the talent, that they will be able to develop the skill, that they will be able to make a living from something that in a country like mine is not seen as a viable profession. There are very few writers in South Africa who write full time. Many of us do it part time because we can't possibly make a living from it. And that's very sad because many writers, I think in many other territories as well, experience much the same thing. And as a result, we perhaps you lose a generation of wonderful writers. So I do want to say to people, just have a little bit of faith in yourselves. Practice, write often. Writing is muscular in that it has to be practiced every day, a little bit like lifting weights, you know. And once you develop that habit of writing often and you develop the muscularity around it, it gives you a little bit of confidence that you require to actually start putting your thoughts down on paper and starting to value those thoughts as possibly something you might want to share with the public at some stage. So believe in that talent. Read widely and keep writing as much as you can. Thank you, Joanne. That's really helpful and inspiring advice for everyone listening, I think. We can all learn from that. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you for this lovely interview and your well-thought-out questions. And I'm very jealous of you being in France right now while I sit here in actually <laughs> Johannesburg. We are in the dead of winter, and it's not a very pleasant place to be, in my opinion. But <laughs> I want to thank you so much for connecting across the distance and for this beautiful conversation. It's really been fantastic. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And if anyone listening would like to keep in touch with Joanne, you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram via Joanne G. Joseph is the username. I can link that in the episode as well. And for anyone listening who just wants to know, this will be the last episode of this season for Writing the Past. So I hope everyone's enjoyed it and that it's helped everyone on their writing journey. I've absolutely loved being able to meet all of these wonderful authors, Joanne included, and I've learned so much from each of them. So if you'd like to listen to more seasons in the future, drop me a message on Instagram or via my website at megandouglasauthor.com. But for now, thank you so much for listening and we wish you all the best in your writing. And as Joanne said, you've got this, just go for it and get stuck in. Mm-hmm.